Well, good morning, One Church. What's up? My name is Carlo. I get to be one of the teaching pastors here. Glad that you are with us. Hope your Thanksgiving was uh, great. Hope you have plenty of leftovers to go back home to. Uh, we are in part three of our Scent series. Uh, we've been looking at how the early church uh, spread rapidly around the world based on their relationship with Jesus. And so you can go to onechurch.tv, catch up uh, where we've been the past couple of weeks. You can also click on a series we have in there titled, It Starts With One, and you can hear us really talk about the beginnings of the book of Acts. But again, just want to echo uh, Dave and saying welcome if this is your first time, first time in a long time, watching over the video venue or any around the world through podcasts. We are so glad that you are connecting with us. So we're looking at how the church spread rapidly. Last week, we looked at the power of the early church and the impact they had in their uh, surrounding community. And at onechurch.tv, we want to be known by what we are for, not about what we're against, but what we're for. And we want Clarksville and Fort Campbell to know that we are for them, and we want them to be glad that we are here. This week, we're going to talk about an unlikely disciple, and we're going to be in Acts chapter 9. We'll get there in just a few. He he was a militant atheist. He uh, was bent on undermining any belief in God based on the Bible. And the last thing this guy wanted was to be converted, to be changed into a fully devoted follower of Christ. Yet God sneaks up on him, and in his own words, he says, I was surprised by joy, and he said, I was dragged kicking and screaming, the most reluctant of convert, into the, into the kingdom of God. And the man I'm talking about is a guy we know of now as C.S. Lewis. Or take this man, the son of a fire-breathing minister. He was a missionary to America. He had a great theological mind. Yet he was a total failure as a human being. And he was a failure in many parts as a minister. One day, he sat sulking in his pool of failure. Have you ever been swimming in the pool of failure, right? He kind of sat sulking in his misery. And he said, all of a sudden, my heart became strangely warmed. And he ends up becoming a great fountain for millions and millions and millions of Christ followers when he finally has this encounter with Jesus. The man is a guy we know of as John Wesley. Or how about the monk who had a mistress? That sounds like a setup for a joke, right? You heard of one about the monk with a mistress? He struggled within his soul so much that he actually prayed, oh Lord, make me pure, but not yet. One day, He finally meets Jesus, and Augustine of Hippo takes the first steps to becoming the man who would eventually become St. Augustine. What do St. Augustine and John Wesley and C.S. Lewis have in common? Well, besides the fact that they're long dead, right, uh, they went on to become some of the most prolific Christian thinkers and authors, theologians, leaders in their day. They changed the world, and they had their worlds changed forever when they encountered the man, Christ Jesus. They were changed. They were converted is the word we we use. Have you ever been converted? Some of you have been converted from a PC to a Mac, right? Some of you converted from a Samsung to an iPhone. Some of you converted from an iPhone to a piece of garbage, right? I'm kidding. Everyone is welcome. Nobody's perfect, including you Android users, and and anything's possible here at One Church. We're glad you're here, right? Seriously, though, we've, we've... All of us have changed in one way or another. We had a set of beliefs and something happened. We encountered something, someone, and it shifted. It changed our beliefs. And that's what it means to convert, to convert. Uh, It means to cause a change in form, character, or function. Now, this is very important for us to understand. The Bible never calls us as Christ followers to go and make converts. 
The Bible never tells us it's our mission to convert people. What it does tell us to do is that we have to go and make disciples, which means fully devoted followers of Christ. It's awesome. And making fully devoted followers of Christ includes the awesome process of life change, also known as conversion. But here's the awesome news. Conversion is God's part. Life change, living the life of a Christ follower, that's where we get to join in in this great work that God begins when he saves us. So not everyone who meets Jesus has some wild stars collide, warm and fuzzy, burning bush kind of crazy moment. Not everyone's story is that way. But here's one thing I know from what the the authors of the Bible tell us and from what I know about church history and what I know from my own personal experience. Here's what I know to be true, and it's our big idea, is that everything changes when you meet Jesus. Everything changes when you meet Jesus. This is the power that fueled the early church. This is what fueled their growth. It was seeing someone who was one way have an encounter with Jesus, and then their life changes. And that's what drew people to want to know more about who is this Jesus. They saw mean people, hateful people, all of a sudden meet Jesus and become loving people. Selfish people meet Jesus, and all of a sudden they become generous and they care about others. People who were divided and always fighting, all of a sudden they're unified and they have everything in common and they share. And all of a sudden, instead of being known for what they're against, the church becomes known for what they're for, and that centers on the life change that happens when we actually encounter Jesus. Life change. Conversion. So let's look at Acts chapter 9 and see what I think is probably one of the most unlikely people in the New Testament, to have this experience of life change, to to go from being one way to another. This man, he too was a deeply religious person. He was passionate about the law of Moses, so the Old Testament. He was very passionate about those laws and enforcing those laws, and so much so that he went out of his way to, to persecute and to kill all who would even think about following Jesus. And yet, this man would go on to change the world. He's responsible for most of the New Testament. He planted more churches and influenced the early church more than any of the leaders that we know of in the Bible, except for Jesus. And this man, we know him now by his Greek name, Paul, but in Acts chapter 9, what we're going to read, he's referred to by his Hebrew name, Saul. Pastor Chris talked about him a little bit last week. We're going to dig in to his story of life change. So I'm going to start reading Acts chapter 9. It'll be on the screen or on the YouVersion app if you want to follow along there on your phone. It says this, meanwhile, Saul was uttering threats with every breath, and he was eager to kill the Lord's followers. So he went to the high priest, and he requested letters addressed to the synagogues in Damascus, asking for the congregation, excuse me, asking for their cooperation in the arrest of any followers of the way he found there. He wanted to bring them, men and women, back to Jerusalem in chains. And as he was approaching Damascus on this mission, a light from heaven suddenly shone down around him. He fell to the ground. And heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? What we learn from the jump in this story is that when you meet Jesus, your posture changes. When you meet Jesus, your posture changes. We first meet Saul in the book of Acts, and he's just a minor player. And this story is so important because there's a shift that's going to happen in the book of Acts where the story is about 
Peter and the original apostles, and it's going to shift to being all about Paul. By the time we get to chapter 13, it's going to be all about Paul and his story. But up until this point, he's just a bit player. He's a guy who was there present at Stephen's execution. Pastor Chris talked about that. Uh, Acts chapter 7, uh, we, we see some of that there. But a lot has happened since we first see Saul to now. Basically, Saul goes on a mission to persecute the church in Jerusalem. And let me pause. When I say persecute, he, he wasn't going to the church in Jerusalem and saying, sorry, but you can't say Merry Christmas during the, during the Christmas holidays. He wasn't saying, sorry, you can't wear your button that says Jesus is Lord. He wasn't saying, sorry, you can't pray. He, he, persecution, right? This means he was killing people who were Christians, arresting people who were Christians. I just want to kind of beat that dead horse a little bit for those of us here in this land of the free where we have religious expression. I want us to have some perspective when we feel like we're being persecuted as Christ followers. If someone has never knocked on your door and taken you to jail for being a Christ follower or killed your family member or loved one for being a Christ follower, you probably aren't experiencing persecution. Can I say that? I got one amen. Thank you. Save me. Can I say that? Y'all comfortable with that? You might be inconvenienced to have to say happy holidays. You'll live. That is not persecution. Persecution is, I'm going to kill your three-year-old until you renounce Jesus, right? That's persecution. And that's what Saul was doing to the early church. And that's what's happening to Christ followers all around our planet right now in a lot of different countries where that's the kind of persecution they face. And so Saul was on that mission. If there's Christians meeting, gathering, he was going to bust up the meeting, arrest them, have them killed if he can. And what he did actually caused some of the Christians in Jerusalem to flee and to run away and to spread to other places. So God actually used that persecution to grow the church. So this early church that was sent out by God, persecution in a lot of instances was the fuel that sent them. For example, last week we heard about a man named Philip, Philip, this evangelist. Well, Philip fled that persecution. He ends up going north towards Syria and doing great work there. And so what's really wild is Saul now in Acts 9 is on this journey to kill Christians. And really those Christians wouldn't even be up there if Saul hadn't started persecuting them in Jerusalem. Saul basically created this problem. So as we see, he's on his way to Damascus. And and this story is so important to to the New Testament, it's so important to our journey that it's told three separate times in the book of Acts. That's kind of a rule when you're studying the Bible. Anytime you see that kind of repetition, that means pay attention. This is important. And we see Saul's story in Acts chapter 9, Acts chapter 22, and in Acts chapter 26. Saul, he was full of hatred towards the church. Acts 9 said every breath meant literally he found his life's energy in making threats and voting on the death of Christians. We sang a song about every beat calling out Jesus' name and, and how our heart wants to sing only for his glory. And we, we talked about that. Well, Saul is the opposite of that song, right? Every beat was about killing a Christian. Every breath was how could he take you out and take your family out and rid the earth of these people following this Nazarene named Jesus. He was passionate, all in to destroy the church. And yet, when Jesus shows up, what does he do? He falls flat on his face. Up until this point, he's just going after Christ's followers. And then finally he meets the Christ and he's completely humbled, flattened. The power of God, the presence of God, the reality of who Jesus is knocks this very religious, pious, zealous man off of his high horse, literally flat on his face. And 
throughout the Old Testament and in the Jewish literature, whenever someone encounters uh, kind of a divine being, it says they often would, would fall to the ground. You read about angels showing up and people would lay prostrate. The word worship that we see interpreted in the scripture, it actually refers more to a posture than a style. So worship isn't just the slow songs at the end of the music part of church service, right? That's not just worship. Worship is actually a posture, meaning to prostrate, to lower myself in the presence of someone greater. That's what happens when Saul meets Jesus. He has a change of posture. Let's keep reading. Verse 5. Who are you, Lord? So in verse 4, Jesus says, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Verse 5. Who are you, Lord? Saul asks. And the voice replied, I am Jesus, the one you are persecuting. Now get up, go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. And the men with Saul stood speechless, for they heard the sound of someone's voice, but saw no one. And Saul picked himself up off the ground, but when he opened his eyes, he was blind. So his companions led him by the hand to Damascus. He remained there blind for three days and did not eat or drink. He encounters Jesus His posture completely changes. He's humbled. He can't see anymore. He doesn't know what he's doing. So when you encounter Jesus, your posture changes and your plans change. When you encounter Jesus, your plans change. I'm a planner. I love plans, my maps, organizing, having all my confirmation emails ready to go, everything in triplicate in my phone. You might just see me up here preaching right now, and, and, but I have a sermon on the screen and a sermon right here, and my sermon pulled up on my phone. Like, I got a plan, right? And I got it in my brain. Like, I, I plan, 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 plan. Uh, even my computer is like 10 steps away. I could pull that out and, and go off those notes if I had to. I love plans. I hate it when plans change, unless I'm the one changing the plans, because then that doesn't count, because I'm still in control. Anybody with me on that, right? I love the order and the plan. I don't do anything at the last minute. Like, if you, if you say, hey, you know what? I know we got tickets to the concert tonight. Let me ask Carlo. I'm just going to tell you, don't because you're going to make me change my plans, and I would love to go. Go bless someone else. I'm going to say, no, that would be a bad idea. Don't, don't invite me to that. I like to plan, right? Love you. Thanks for the offer, but I like to plan. Don't like the 11th hour changes, which is exactly why God called me into ministry and called me to be a pastor where you don't get to plan or control anything, right? That's God's sense of humor. I hate it when plans change. One year, I was in North Carolina on a business trip, and uh, I had several different stops that I was making throughout the state, did a lot of flying. And uh, one of these little flights, I was supposed to take 37-minute connecting flight from, from Charlotte to Raleigh. If you've ever flown through Charlotte, you know that's where connecting flights go to die, right? You better pack a lunch. If you fly through Charlotte, you're going to be stuck. So I fly in during a storm, and my connecting flight gets struck by lightning. So we have to wait to get a new plane. And then while we're waiting to get a new plane, all of a sudden the crew timed out. You guys know what I mean. The crew had done all their hours. So then we had to wait to get a new crew. By the time all of that stuff happened, we, we, we have to wait for the storm to pass. So it's just delay after delay after delay. Uh, three hours later, uh, it's supposed to be a 37-minute collecting flight. Three hours later, I finally get on the plane, get to the hotel, have to wait for a cab. This is pre-Uber, right? Just completely messed it up. On my return flight, almost the same thing happened, except there was no lightning. This time, one of the wheels broke, and then they had to wait for a crew, and then the crew timed out. I'm not exaggerating. On the same trip, it was 46 hours and three delayed flights of nonsense doing all of this stuff. I was a hot mess because my plans were all messed up. And I really couldn't be mad because it was truly an act of God that slowed my plans up. Like the plane got struck by lightning. Who, who can I yell at, right? That's not the airline's fault. 
And I'm just not that, I'm not that tough to yell at God for striking the plane. So I just went along for the ride. Hate it when plans change. But when you meet Jesus, your plans are going to change. Saul was planning to go to Damascus, and his plan was quite simple. He'd done it before. I'm going to go into this town. I'm going to catch me some of these followers of Jesus. I'm going to beat them up. I'm going to play judge, jury, executioner. Then I'm going to go on to the next town, wash, wash, rinse, repeat, do the same thing, right? Just keep going on and on, killing people. And all of those plans changed drastically after he has this encounter with the risen Christ on this road. And what's powerful is with Saul's uh, conversion came this call, this call to do great work for God. We talk about the call of God in church world. What do we mean by that? What does the call mean? The call is simply this, God's purpose for your life in the form of a mission. That's the call of God. If you're here in this room and you are in Christ, you have been called by God to do a couple of things. You've been called to make disciples. That means you've been called to lead people into a growing relationship with Jesus. You've been called to love everyone, everyone, right? And you've been called to be there for the poor, the hurting, the sick, the hungry, the widow, the orphan. Basically, you've been called to do the things that Jesus did, all of us. Now, there's more specific things we we don't have time to get into right now. But in general, all of us have a mission. All of us have a call. All of us have a kind of a true north that we can go back to when we start to stray and say, wait a minute, am I loving people like Jesus loved them? Am I leading people to be more like Jesus? All of us, not just pastors, all of us have that call and that mission. And with Saul, his plans changed from going on journeys to kill Christians now to going on journeys to lead people to Christ. God doesn't just save us. He actually calls us to do great work for him. Ephesians 2 tells us that. So that's awesome. Conversion's God's part. Living the life of the Christ follower, that's where we get to partner in on this journey. So when we meet Jesus, our posture changes and our plans change. Let's keep reading. Verse 10. Now there was a believer in Damascus named Ananias, and the Lord spoke to him in a vision saying, Ananias, yes, Lord, he replied. And the Lord said, go over to Straight Street. I I don't know why Luke felt the need to tell us what street it was on. I'm sorry for this little this little squirrel I'm seeing here in the text, but that's just hilarious to me that we get that level of detail. Go to Straight Street to the house of Judas. And when you get there, ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul. He is praying to me right now. I have shown him a vision of a man named Ananias coming in and laying hands on him so that he can see again. But Lord, exclaimed Ananias, I've heard many people talk about the terrible things this man has done to the believers in Jerusalem. And he is authorized by the leading priest to arrest everyone who calls upon your name. But the Lord said, go, for Saul is my chosen instrument to take my message to the Gentiles and to kings, as well as to the people of Israel. And I will show him how much he must suffer for my name's sake. So Ananias went and he found Saul and he laid hands on him and said, brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road has sent me so that you might regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And just like that, the instrument of death becomes God's chosen instrument to carry his message all around the world. When you meet Jesus, your posture and your plans change. But when you meet Jesus, your relationships also change. Saul goes from being an enemy of God and an enemy of the church to being brother Saul. This was a Christian greeting, an early greeting that they had for each other, being a part of this family of God, just like that. Both of these men in this passage are are designed as instruments 
of God. And it's a really cool comparison between this Ananias and Saul. Back in Acts chapter 5, we learned about a comparison between another guy named Ananias and a guy named Barnabas. One was generous, one was not. So here we see these two people who really couldn't be any different. Paul is, is on this mission. He's driven. He's trying to do things his way, kill Christians. He's on, his ro- on the road to Damascus. Ananias, he's just a dude who is minding his business. And God spoke to him and said, oh, I got a mission for you. Here's what you're going to do. The guy who's trying to kill all the people just like you, I want you to go to him. Maybe that's been your story. You were just minding your business, and then Jesus showed up, right? And everything changes. I know that's what happened to me. God speaks and says you have to go. Without Ananias' willingness to serve, there's no telling what would have happened to Saul. We read Acts chapter 9 and think about the flashing light and the voice from heaven and all this drama, but it's really awesome to see how God uses people like you, people like me, to play a role in this story. We're going to talk about more of that in, in future series, about the role we play in God's story and in people's story. But Ananias is such a critical person. There's no telling what would have happened to Saul without this one man's willingness. Remember, Saul was on his way to do what? Kill people exactly like Ananias. That's what he was out to do. So don't be shocked when God calls you to serve the person you are most afraid of dealing with. Don't be surprised when God puts you in a situation to love, to be Jesus, to the last group of people you would ever think about encountering. In the same way that Ananias takes this step towards service, says, yes, Lord, I'll do what you want me to do, all of us have the potential to be used as instruments to change someone's life. I think that's wonderful. I think that's a fascinating thing. Years ago, uh, back in the late 90s, I played drums in a, a Christian rock band. We were a Christian band, and we were a band full of Christians. You know the difference? Like, we actually were Christians, Christ followers. We loved Jesus. And the music we made actually was like talking about Jesus and Bible and God stuff. There's a, you can be Christians in a band, and that's okay. But to be a Christian band, your lyrics have to reflect. Anyway, that's a little soapbox I get on. But we were one of those bands. Like, legit, you listen to our songs, there's no denying, oh, yeah, these guys are preaching through their music. So we were, but it was like a punk rock band, right? So it was not for old folks. Like, we were loud and fast, and, and if you didn't have the lyric sheet, you might not know what we were saying, but we didn't care. We knew what we were saying. We were just fired up, sold out, you know, crazy kids, uh, love Jesus. We played student ministries and conferences and all this stuff. So we're at one of these events, Um, and it was a long show. I remember because we had to do a bunch of filler stuff, you know, to make it time. Like we had 30 minutes worth of songs and they're like, yeah, we want you guys to do 50 minutes. So we have to go back and huddle. Like, what are we going to do? Um, so anyway, thankfully we had a couple of us, uh, two of the guys in that band are, are now pastors, myself and another guy named Johnny. So we were not short on words even back then, right? We could come up with, with conversation and stuff. So we're up, they had a great show after the show was my favorite part because we get to hang out with all the kids who's shown up and, and meet new people. Uh, and this kid comes walking towards me. We're out standing outside, and he says, I used to hate black people. First words out of his mouth. And, you know, and then so into my soul, I'm like, well, first of all, I'm Puerto Rican, so slow down. Second of all, I'm about, I'm about to have to beat up some kid outside of church. Walking up where I'm from, you just don't walk up to people like that. I'm not from Clarksville. Don't get it twisted, right? You just don't walk up to people where I'm from like that. If you don't know me, you don't, you know. Anyway, kid walks up. I used to hate black people. He was, like, angry. Um, He says, I thought they were full of themselves, so entitled, bad attitude. He just starts giving me his laundry list of why black folks suck, right? And I'm thinking, man, I'm brown. I got a list of why brown folks suck. You don't have to tell me 
how, how, while we're crazy, right? I got, we got our own list. We know how, where we mess up, right? He just seems hell-bent on giving me his reasons of why brown folks are terrible. Then he starts to get emotional and says, but I saw you playing in this loud band, having the time of your life, and something in me went from being full of rage because I was so mad that you were even here to all of a sudden, I wanted what you had. You were so happy and full of life and full of energy. And, you know, I'm thinking that's got to be Jesus because if you see Carlos sitting somewhere, I don't think happy and full of life are necessarily the first things you think about. I'm just being, I know who I am, right? I'm confident in that. You see me and might be like, uh, is it safe to go talk to that guy? I get it. I get it. This kid sees that. And all I was doing was playing drums in the band God called me to be in with my friends, loving Jesus, being who I am. And he starts apologizing to me. Now the kid's crying. And he's and I say, kid, this is like an 18, 17, 18-year-old guy. He starts crying and saying, man, I'm so sorry for how I felt. And, and, and the guy starts confessing all of his racism baggage to me. And I'm still just floored, like, bro, that's, that's crazy. Like, all I did was play the drums. I didn't say anything. I didn't do anything. I was just being where I was supposed to be, doing what God called me to do. I wish I knew the rest of his story, but I don't. But I know in that moment, someone encountered Jesus, and their life was changed. And all I was was Ananias. I was just the guy on the side who said, yes, Lord, I'll go do that thing. It doesn't make sense, but I'll be the brown dude in the loud rock band playing drums. I'll go do that. That's all I did. And God used it to change lives. Our love and action can be the catalyst to someone else walking into God's plan for their life. And that's what you see happen in Saul's conversion story. That's what you see happen with Ananias. Don't ever think that God can't use you because you don't have some big, massive conversion story. Well, I used to be on crack, and I used to sell little kids, and now Jesus saved. That doesn't have to be everybody's story. If that is your story, I'm glad God saved you. If your story is, all I've ever known my entire life is church, and I've loved Jesus my entire life, and I'm not perfect, but all I've ever done is try to live for him. That is just as powerful of a conversion story as someone who was in what we would call these depths of sin. Don't ever think that you can't be used by God. Look at the steps Ananias took to make it possible for Saul to fulfill his next step. We talk about taking steps all the time. For Saul to finally have this revelation of what God wanted to do, to have the scales removed from his eyes, Ananias had to dare to believe in transformation. His next step was, I just have to believe God's powerful enough to save Saul. The old Saul sought to kill Ananias. The new Saul gets to be chosen to bring life wherever he goes. Ananias had to overcome his personal fears. He knew Saul was trying to kill people. He had to overcome his, he had to take a step towards faith and trust in God. And then, of course, Ananias had to overcome his personal prejudices. Who wanted Saul around after all, right? Would you want the guy to hang out in your house when you knew last week he killed like 45 Christians? And all of a sudden now you're saved, right? Some of you treat your friends like that, right? Man, I saw you at the club last week. Now you're talking about you went to church and Jesus saved you? Okay, right? Even right now, we can be a little skeptical about the power of God to save people. Ananias believed God, and because of that, he gets to greet him. Brother Saul. Let's finish up the story. Verse 18 says, instantly, something like scales fell from Saul's eyes, and he regained his sight. Then he got up and was baptized. And afterwards, he ate some food and regained his strength. Remember, he hadn't eaten for three days. And Saul stayed with the believers in Damascus a few days. And immediately, he began preaching about Jesus in the synagogue, saying, he is indeed the son of God. 
And all who heard him were amazed. Isn't this the same man who caused devastation among Jesus' followers, they asked? And didn't he come here to arrest them and take them into chains? Saul's preaching became more and more powerful, and the Jews in Damascus couldn't refute his proofs that Jesus was indeed the Messiah. Your posture, your plans, your relationships all change when you meet Jesus. And when you meet Jesus, your purpose changes. Your why changes when you meet Jesus. Your reason for getting up becomes brand new. At once, Saul begins to preach Jesus. He'd been saved by Jesus, filled with the Holy Spirit, eyes open. He can see now. He immediately starts preaching Jesus that Jesus saves. Saul knew that he was called to the non-Jews, to the Gentiles, but he started preaching to the Jews immediately in Damascus. So right away, he starts going and talking to those, anyone he could see, he would start telling them this good news. Now, Saul did go to Arabia to, to pray and, and for a little bit and to study, but this was really just the outskirts of Damascus. He didn't go off to seminary and get more learning. He just started working and serving right where he was. He didn't look for some extra thing to add to his Jesus. His love for God grew hotter and hotter as he started serving right where he was. Not everyone accepted him. Not everyone, we're going to see this later on, yet he simply stayed right where he was, and he just starts doing what he was called to do. He bloomed where he was planted, and he even took on the Greek name of Paul uh, because he knew this is who he's going to be called to anyways, the Greeks. Uh, And then this one man goes on to revolutionize the world because everything changed when he met Jesus. Conversion is God's part. Living the life of a Christ follower, it's where we get to join in in this great work. You might hear Saul's story and think, what in the world does that have to do with us? Here's the thing. The Bible tells that story three times. I think God does that to tell us this has everything to do with us. Some of us, we are that religious, zealous, I'm doing everything for God person, and we just need to be knocked off of our high horse and really encounter and meet Jesus. Some of us are Ananias, comfortable doing our own thing, head down. I'm just going to love God. And he's waiting for us to take a step towards faith, to take a step away from our insecurities and to start reaching out to the very last people we would ever reach and serve them. Many of us just need to simply respond when God calls us. Yes, Lord. It's the consistent thing we see happen through that story. Where are you at in this story? Are you stuck Is life all about your needs, your preferences? Are you so busy with your plans and busy with your stuff that you've forgotten this Jesus that you met? Let me just ask you bluntly, have you changed since you met Jesus? Or have you even met Jesus at all? Here's the awesome news is that today can be the day we all finally let Jesus knock us off of our high horses The day where we say, yes, Lord, I'll go where you want me to go. I'll do what you want me to do. I'll be who you've called me to be. Here I am. Thank you for saving me. Thank you for rescuing me. God, I want to be busy doing your work. Life change. This is not a call to perfection. This is not a call to instantly everything is going to be great. Saul still had his issues, right, after he met Jesus. Paul still had his issues after he says yes to to God. Everything doesn't go according to plan. In fact, if you remember in Acts 9, what did it say? Jesus said, I'm going to show him how much he's going to suffer 
for me. When we say yes to Jesus, part of that yes is yes to enduring, yes to suffering, just like he did. But we know that he's with us and he walks with us through all of that. How do we live this out? First thing you have to do is you have to humble yourself. We have to humble ourselves. In the Bible, there's one category of people where it actually says God opposes them. He fights against them, and that's the proud. The Bible says, humble yourself under God's hand. He'll lift you up in due time. God gives grace to the humble, but he opposes the proud. So what does that mean to humble myself? It just means to have a worshiper's posture. What does that mean, a worshiper's posture? To live your life every moment knowing there is a God, and I am not that God. There is a Lord, and his name is Jesus. There is one who is in control, whose ways are above my ways, whose thoughts are above my thoughts. And I'm going to put my trust in him because he knows better. And I'm going to do what he's called me to do, a humble posture. The world doesn't revolve around me. He's at the center of my life. So humble yourself. Next thing is, and and I apologize for the alliteration here. This is a little bit over the top alliteration. But you have to connect your conversion with your call through community. Unpack those words. Conversion, life change. I met Jesus and he changed me. Now what's my call? Remember the call of God is just God's plan in the form of a mission, right? God's plan for your life in the form of a mission. So if he's changed my life, how am I now doing the things he wants me to do? Loving him, loving others. The secret is in community. The answer to your prayers are usually the person to the right and left of you in church community. And that small group of believers you gather with, that's where God grows you and tests you, where you serve side by side. You want to learn how to be a more patient person? Hang around Christians. You want to learn how to endure and suffer well? Just be really good friends with someone who loves Jesus. You're going to suffer well. Because you're going to find in this beautiful community different people of different background, different culture, different personality type. My best friend in ministry is the exact opposite of me. You guys know him as Chris Edmondson, right? Completely different personality than I'll ever be. Yet God has put us together to grow. We sharpen each other. Hang out. We enjoy each other's company completely. I would never on my own take the step to grow in relationship with hyper extroverted kind of people. And yet God in his grace puts me in that position and I become better because I get to be around them. That's the power of community. I can do what God's called me to do. Love him, love others, serve others well because I'm connected in community. And then finally, tell somebody about Jesus. Tell somebody about Jesus. If everything changes when I meet Jesus, I need to tell somebody about my encounter with him. Don't take that as I have to start preaching 10 point sermons to people. I got to go to seminary. Tell people about what Jesus has done in your life. Here's how simple this can be, right? You have a friend whose marriage is struggling and you have a story of how your marriage was struggling. And then you put Jesus in your marriage and now here's what our marriage looks like. Just that simple down to earth, right? You could probably tell that. This might be blasphemous to some people. You could probably tell somebody that without even having to mention scripture yet. Just say, hey, man, I don't know your story, but I know when we put God and Jesus at the center of our life, things started to change. That could be enough to draw someone to say, tell me more. Tell people about Jesus. Everything changes when you encounter Jesus. My prayer is that we as a people wouldn't stay stuck 
in that first moment. We wouldn't treat conversion as this one-time event that happened, and then we never deal with it, we never engage it again. Instead, that we would look at life changes ongoing. He saves us, he calls us, he changes us, and we want to be in the business of continuing to grow in him. Everything changes when you meet Jesus. Would you stand with me? Let's pray. God, thank you for your grace. Thank you for the power of your word. Help us to live for you, to love you, to trust you, God. Help us to be the people you've called us to be. If there's a person here who has not said yes to you, God, let this be the moment that they say, God, I'm going to follow you. Forgive me for going my own way. I can't make it on my own. Jesus, I need you. And I know as they do that, you show up and you save like only you can. God, for those of us who are following you, help us to not be too far removed from our experience of change, conversion that we forget you've called us to a mission you've called us to community and you've called us to share your truth with other people rule and reign God in our lives and we thank you for saving us in the strong name of Jesus amen sing with us